feeling stressed, left without gravity, in an environment that gets more and more complicated and complex every day, untangle your mind and go back to the roots of clear thinking. Get the original text of the Leviathan by Hobbes, the two treatises of government by Locke, the social contract by Rousseau, plus the U.S. Constitution from Pennsylvania, bound together into just one practical book. That's right. Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and the U.S. Constitution, bound together into just one practical book to keep your costs low. Near here? No, thanks. Now, how do I know that I'm actually live? Hey, guys, can you hear me? Hi, everyone. Good to see you. So, I'm a little on the tired side tonight, so I'm going to start with a, a relatively straightforward question. Somebody asked, what's up with all the Lenin pictures in your house? And then how is it to look at them every day? Well, about in 2001, in a fit of manic collective insanity, I decided to start seeing if I could find Soviet-era artifacts online, mostly through eBay. I had read a paper by James Pennebaker who claimed that uh, past events start to become historically significant about 15 years after the, after the relevant event, and so 2001 was 15 years after the fall, essentially after the fall of the Berlin Wall, or close enough. And so I started looking on eBay to see what sort of Soviet artifacts I might be able to find. Um, first of all, I was kind of curious about what would be available for purchase, and I also thought it was deeply ironic that the most free market of, of what would you call platforms ever devised, which would be eBay, could now be used to scavenge uh, communist-era artifacts from Russia. You know, it, it just seemed like, to me, someone who was raised during the Cold War, the fact that 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 I could buy things like heads of Lenin on eBay it was just too comical to, to not to pass up, you know. And so I started buying things that I had some familiarity with because of what I'd read historically. And the first thing I bought was about a three by five 
silk flag that was awarded to a factory for meeting its five-year production quota. And I don't know what you know about those infamous quotas, but what would happen is that there were dicta sent down on high about how much factories were supposed to produce and the implied, uh, um, what the, the implication was produce or else by any means necessary. And so two things happened, three things happened. Uh, the goods were often shoddy because they were rushed. There was deception about how much was actually produced and then people were radically overworked and undersupplied. So it was a bad, a bad system, but it was very interesting to actually have one of these flags and see what they were like. And then I bought a clock, a stainless steel clock, a wind-up clock that was a submarine clock and it was bomb-proof, so I thought that would be handy if someone ever bombed my house and I needed to know what time it was. So I bought that and then I found this painting that's actually off to my left here. and It's five Russian revolutionaries, all young and, and quite stalwart looking, standing on the edge of a cliff with a, a red soldier or a white soldier off to the side. They're all shackled together and he's preparing to execute them. That was a, that was a, a fairly common Soviet motif. And um, on my right side, I have a, an, a decorated Soviet war hero who's, who's working in a steel foundry. And like a lot of the Soviet art glorified, I suppose, the, the working class. And I suppose there's nothing wrong with that, depending on the degree of propagandistic intent and falsification. But um, they're kind of like Norman Rockwell paintings, except they don't have the same degree of sentimentality, which is quite interesting. And what's it like to have them around? Well, pretty much every square inch of my house is covered with paintings, and a fair number of them are, I don't suppose, the sorts of paintings that people would usually have in their house. There, Some of them are of the Second World War, and some of them are s strongly political. And, uh, but it's, it's, well, sometimes people say, well, I wouldn't want to live in a museum. And, I guess that isn't how I feel. I actually like living in a museum and I like having these historical artifacts around and I really like watching the propaganda and the art war in the in the paintings because many of these paintings were produced by very talented impressionist artists who were trained in the classical European tradition. They spent months making these paintings and yet they're subordinate in some sense to a political ideology. But what's interesting is that as the political ideology recedes into the past, the more purely artistic elements of the painting seem to remain. And so it's cool to kind of watch, it's a very slow process, but it's very interesting to watch the art itself emerge triumphant over the propaganda. And then, you know, these things also remind me of, of what, what I'm interested in, and, and that's the study of ideology. And they, remind me how powerful ideology can be and how many different pathways it can take to 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 control i suppose and 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 it also reminds me of the reality of the 20th century because it was a terrible reality and, and it, if we forget it then we're likely to repeat it now my kids grew up in this house and you know they i asked them about it because i suppose the paintings are fairly heavy and and maybe even somewhat frightening but they really liked it and the pe people that I it gives me a reason to invite people into my house and gives me something to play with and and I I guess I need 
things to play with by all appearances. So that's the story of the of the Soviet paintings. So Please tell us about your ideas of the problem of gender integrated combat units and how it affects morale. Please talk about the role trans people should or should not serve in combat units. Huh. Well, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm exactly an expert in that regard. Um, I don't know how gender, how multiple gendered combat units are going to work. My, because I'm fundamentally a traditionalist in, in most ways, mostly because I'm afraid of the unintended consequences of radical change, I would say that it's dangerous to adjust a system that's working. And it's very hard for me to imagine a situation, especially a combat situation, where the women and men can actually be treated um, equally. I, I don't think that the broader society would even want to see that. I mean, I suppose there are exceptions to that sort of thing, like like um, the situation perhaps in Israel, although I suspect even in Israel that the women take the more, uh, the less combat-heavy jobs. Now, I don't know that, but and maybe I'm just being prejudiced in that answer, but uh, it, it just doesn't seem to me to be a very wise idea. Um, what role trans people should serve? I really can't say. I, I don't have anything, any advice about that. I, I'm just not informed enough to, to make a, uh, uh, a conclusion about that. I think it's very strange, however, I'm, I've talked to some people in the Canadian Armed Forces in, in recent months, and I do think it's very strange that this is the sort of problem that our military is actually trying to solve. You'd, You'd think that there would be more important things to concentrate on than rapid gender um, equalization in the military. Um, I just don't see why that's such a priority, uh, but maybe that's just my old-fashioned conservatism speaking. It, it, could, be, uh, it could be that. Um, Derek Fake asks, how do you see love, Eros, in your general worldview? Where does love come from? Well, you guys, you ask impossibly hard questions. Well, I think that truth has to be embodied inside love or in, embedded inside love. You know, it, it's not easy to figure out a hierarchy of values, of ultimate values. Um, there's great, the great traditional values of, of the good and the beautiful and the true, and let's say the courageous and that sort of thing. It's not easy to figure out how you arrange those hierarchically, but it seems to me that truth is likely something that serves a master of one form or another, at least ethical truth, and love is something like the decision that being is fundamentally good, or it's the decision to act as if being is fundamentally good. That might be the right way of thinking about it. So, you know, I thought about this in relationship to my son when he was little, three years old and like unbearably cute, and you know, little three-year-olds, they're, they're fairly easily hurt. I mean, they're quite robust in some ways, but they're fairly easily hurt. They can run out into traffic and, you know, they skin their knees and they bang their heads on tables and 
you know, they're prone to emotional breakdown and they have all these extreme fragilities that make you nervous, I would say, and alert and attentive as an adult, but that also expose you directly to the to the fact of the potential tragedy of life, which is, I think, one of the reasons why having children matures you in, in a way that nothing else can. And, you know, I imagined, I've written about this in my new book, 12 Rules for Life, I imagined that I could remove his vulnerabilities one by one so that he couldn't be hurt. And so, you know, I thought, well, I could make him into a robot and that was 15 feet tall and made out of metal and and that would remove his physical vulnerability and he could have tremendous strength and you know you could turn him into something like a superhero with all these with all these strengths instead of these exceptional vulnerabilities but what I realized very rapidly was that every time you removed a vulnerability you removed an essential part of the person right a part that you really love because with a little three-year-old boy kid for example I mean it's their it's their it's their fragility in some sense that's a huge part of their charm and appeal it's not like you'd wish it on them but it's it's part of their it's part of their value as beings and i think that reflects something like the this paradoxical situation that the taoists referred to when when they in the Tao Te Ching they talk about the what makes a pot valuable is the empty space inside it it's it's what it's not as much as what it is that makes it, well, actual, first of all, real, but also useful. And there's something really profound about that in that limitations, I would say limitation is the precondition for being. And it's really, I, I'd like to get this right so that you can follow it because it's, it's one of the most useful thoughts, I think, that has ever occurred to me. The first is that limits are a precondition for being just like rules are a precondition for a game like you can't play a game where you can make any move at any time you have to narrow the playing field substantially and you have to put restrictions on what can be done in order for anything to be done and so maybe being is this paradoxical state where there's there's just enough limitation to maximize possibility something like that and that seems right to me why that would be I have no idea but maybe that's something like an answer to why why there's anything what why anything was created or, or I know I'm speaking metaphysically but but I still think it's worthwhile doing so and then well if 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 limitation is the precondition for being then then that that introduces suffering into the world and tragedy because of course suffering and tragedy are a consequence of limitation and so then the situation is that if you want to have the being where possibility is maximized you have to accept the limitations that produce tragedy and so that's maybe the justification for tragedy assuming that such a thing needs to be justified and then the final thought in that three-part series is well maybe there's a way to live so that the tragedy that's an intrinsic part of limited being becomes bearable or becomes even something like celebratable and I guess that would be akin to Nietzsche's um, wish for the eternal return, like he thought you should live so that if every moment that you lived re recurred eternally, that that would be a good thing. And so it's a heroic mode of being. And it's conceivable that a heroic mode of being that requires the adoption of responsibility 
gives your life sufficient gravitas and weight and meaning so that the tragedy of being can be withstood without becoming corrupt. And I would certainly hope that that would be the case. And I think there's some reason to assume that it might be. So, can you talk more about the resurrection? This remains a stumbling block for many of your more atheistic followers who have otherwise embraced your approach to understanding Christianity. Well, I can only talk about it symbolically to begin with, and that's, I think, not sufficient. But I hope as I move through the biblical series that I can zero in on that more and more particularly. But, I mean, the idea of the dying and resurrecting God is a very old idea. Um, and it's echoed in such things as the imagery, say, of the phoenix, which burns itself up and then restores itself to its, to its early form. And I think, speaking purely psychologically, that idea of the dying and resurrecting Savior is something like a reflection of the fact that in order to progress psychologically, you have to let go, especially in the face of obstacles, you have to let go of those things that are impeding your progress that might be very dear to your heart. You have to let them go and let them die, and then you have to let a new part of yourself be born. So, because when you're wrong, you have to let the part of you that's wrong die, and then a new part spring to life in some sense. Uh, it's a new part that's partly a union of your mind and a union of the information that's contained in the error that you committed. And it, it's like the birth in some sense of a new spirit. And so, you could say that there's this idea that you have to have faith in Christ because Christ is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through but through Him. What that means symbolically, as far as I can tell, that is that you have to embrace the process of voluntary death and rebirth in order to continue moving forward properly in your life. And it, it's also that process of death and rebirth that rejuvenates the Father. And it's also that process of death and rebirth that produces the Father to begin with, if you think about the Father as the symbol of of culture. So, at minimum, the idea of the resurrected Christ is the idea that you should identify not with that part of yourself that's stagnant and dead and that already knows, but is prone to error. You should identify with that part of yourself that's always stretching beyond what you currently know and has the faith to let go of old certainties so that new patterns of being can be brought into place. And so, now, that's a purely psychological explanation, and I, I think I've made the case in my biblical lectures that I'm striving for a psychological interpretation at the moment. Um, my experience with the biblical stories is that there are layers of depth in them that are sufficiently profound, perhaps because of the staggering hyperlinking of the text and its association with almost the entire corpus of Western literature, that as you keep digging, you find more and more. And so, um, I don't know what to make of the more metaphysical claims, you know, of, and, but I'm, I'm going to leave it at that, because I don't know. It's only speculation. Um, see, I guess it is that we don't, I really don't believe that we understand consciousness, and we don't understand its role in the cosmos. It could be that consciousness is just an epiphenomena of materialist processes, but 
there's a couple of things to me that seems to mitigate against that explanation. And the first is that we don't have a, an account of consciousness that's, that's useful. We have no idea how the material substrate of the brain produces this, this awareness and self-awareness that seems to be crucially important in the existence of the cosmos insofar as if there's nothing to experience something, it's very difficult to say in what way that it exists. You need a viewer and an observer, and scientists sort of gerrymander that by positing a hypothetical observer when they talk about uh, phenomena where there is no actual observer. And so consciousness could be just an epiphenomena, but it could also be something central to the nature of being, and certainly mythological stories present it that way, that there's, there's nature, that would be nurture from a scientific perspective, and there's the social world, that would be the great father from the mythological perspective, and, and that's all there is from a scientific perspective. But from a mythological perspective, there's active consciousness, and that's associated with the idea of the logos. And the logos seems to be something like, if you think about it as consciousness, it seems to be this thing that encounters the potential of future being, and then determines at least in part how to shape it. Now, obviously, we're constrained in many ways. We can't shape things in any old way. Um, but we can certainly advance in the direction of our imagination in quite a s staggering and compelling manner. And then you might say, well, is that real? Is, is, is the idea that we have a consciousness and that it, it's free in some in, in, incomprehensible sense and that it plays a role in constructing the cosmos, is that real? And then I would say, well, it depends on what you mean by real. But I would also point out that you act as if it's real and that our functional legal systems, like the legal systems of the, on the West, are predicated on the acceptance of its reality. And it was an idea that took many, many thousands of years to, to emerge. You know, first of all, the only sovereign was, well, was the king and God, and then the nobles became sovereign, and then men became sovereign, and then with the Christian Revolution, every individual soul became sovereign. That idea of, of individual sovereignty and worth is the core presupposition of our legal system and our cultural systems. And so we all walk around acting as if every one of us is a divine center of logos uh, because we give each other the respect of, of, of individual citizens who are sovereign and that are equal before the law. And the funny thing is, is if someone doesn't treat you that way, it treats you as if your free will is an illusion or refuses to regard you as someone who plays an active part in choosing the outcome of their life, then you get very, very annoyed. And so if it's an illusion, and perhaps it is, we don't understand an alternative to it. And it's unbelievably, it's unbelievably functional. So, okay, so back to love. Well, um, it, we'll make the case that uh, limitation is necessary for being. And then we can make the case that tragedy is an inevitable consequence of limitation. And then we might say, well, is being worth the tragedy? And I think the answer yes to that is love. And the answer no to that is the opposite of love. Because when you, when you love someone, you love them in spite of or even because of their vulnerability. Not that you don't want them to transcend that, because you do. But, and I think that love is the 
acceptance of the price of being. It's, it's the way you manifest your acceptance of the price of being, because if you love someone, you know, they have their vulnerabilities like every human being. But your basic judgment is that despite the fact that they have these vulnerabilities that are even fatal and that are certainly tragic, that it's better that they were than that they weren't. And that's, and I think that's the right attitude to have towards being itself. Uh, it's, it's, it's an optimistic attitude, and I think it has to be predicated on faith because I don't think that you can necessarily derive that conclusion by, by looking at the available evidence. The available evidence is kind of 50-50 in, in many situations. But, but I can tell you if you adopt the other attitude that being is unjustifiable, then that leads you down a very, very dark road, and then you soon start to work in a way that makes things far more intolerable than they should be. So that's, uh, that's my answer to that. Any tips on avoiding booze? Yeah, that's a real tough one. Well, I would say a couple of things. Um, there is a drug, if you're a binge drinker, there is a drug called naltrexone that you could consider, and you take naltrexone every day. It, it doesn't really have any psychological effect on you, but if you're a naltrexone responder, what will happen is that it will dampen your positive response to alcohol. So some people who are alcoholic, many of them have a very pronounced opiate uh, uh, an opiate effect from alcohol. It looks like it's mediated by beta endorphin, and naltrexone is, a, is an opiate blocker. And so um, what naltrexone seems to do is dampen the positive response. And the positive response, which would be opiate and then dopaminergic, is the same response that makes you want to keep drinking when you start drinking. So if you're one of those people that has a drink and then has to have another one and then has to have another one and, you know, soon all your money's gone, then the probability that you have an opiate response is pretty high. And naltrexone can help with that. Um, generally, when people take naltrexone, they keep drinking. They try to control, but they keep drinking, and they learn over time that the alcohol doesn't have the same punch. It's still pleasant, but it doesn't have the same overwhelming punch that it did at, at one point. So that would be one suggestion, and it's worth trying. The other is, like, make a plan. I would say do the future authoring program, you know, because it isn't that you're trying to avoid booze exactly. It's that you're trying to restructure your whole life, you know, because if you're a drinker, then all your friends are drinkers, and... and you're used to drinking in every social situation and the places that you go to socialize are places that you drink and like it's really built in as a whole set of habits and so what you have to do is kind of redesign your life and you have to think of things you can't just stop drinking you have to figure out what you're going to start doing instead of drinking there's a hole that you have to fill and and you know the future authoring program will also help you figure out what your life could look like in the absence of alcohol and what kind of hell you could end up in if you keep drinking and, and it causes all the problems that it can cause. And I, I think you really need to, like, you need to think through the hell that can occur and you have to think through how your life could be valuable without alcohol so that you can be motivated enough to, to try to, to regulate it. And I would also say, if you fail and slip, don't berate yourself and beat yourself up just start quitting again because you know if you could cut your alcohol intake down 75 percent that's a hell of a lot better than zero 
and often people go all or nothing just like they do when they're quitting cigarettes and you know they'll quit for a month and then have a cigarette and they'll say oh my god now I'm now I've broken the pact and then they'll smoke all pack and they'll be smoking again you don't have to do that you can just decide that you slipped and that you're gonna get back on the wagon again and you know it can take a long time but I, I do believe that you need a, a better vision of life right you have to find something to do that's better than alcohol and that might take some some real consideration especially if alcohol is a very potent drug for you and I would also say don't hesitate to try the naltrexone it's it's got a pretty decent clinical history and it's it's basically harmless so I've listened carefully to your Cain and Abel lecture but waves of contempt for existence itself keep coming there's a part of me that revels in riding these waves waves but can I harness them for good God, you guys, you ask the hardest questions. Waves of contempt of exist for existence itself keep coming. Well, I guess what I would say is it's probably time for a little bit of individual psychoanalysis and I don't necessarily mean that you have to go and find a therapist I would say you're you're generalizing you know you say waves of contempt for existence itself keep coming but I don't believe that that's exactly right I, and I'm, I'm certainly not accusing you of being deceitful it's it's more like low resolution my suspicions are is that there's a set of experiences that you've had that are characteristic to your own personal life that have caused you to to cause you some bitterness and some resentment and that those haven't been thought through and usually thinking through means at least in some part trying to take as much responsibility for those for altering the conditions under which those things happen going forward into the future as possible like the purpose of memory is to stop you from doing the same stupid things in the future right that that's the purpose and so if you've had experiences that have made you bitter and resentful or are still engaged in experiences that are doing that then you need to do a careful microanalysis of what those are and see if you can see if you can flip your attitude in some manner you know I, i'm not saying this is easy but the first thing you can do is at least figure out what those memories are and i might recommend trying the past authoring program because what the past authoring program does is ask you to break your life up into six epochs and then to identify the emotionally significant occurrences during each of those epochs and you can kind of tell if something needs work from a memory perspective if if it occurred more than about 18 months ago and when you remember it it still causes like a wave of sadness or anger or really any kind of negative emotion because what that means is that your brain is still targeting that experience as threatening and unexplored and what that means is that in some sense part of you or a part of you that could exist is still stuck in that memory because you can go back and do a careful causal analysis of the events that led up to the unfortunate circumstance and try to map out your role I mean, even if your role is minor there's going to be things that you could have done differently to avoid it and that's what you need to figure out for the future I would say you try to shed all your personal resentment uh, part of that too is to not th not take things too personally you know like 
one of the advantages of developing what I would regard as a mythologically centered view of the cosmos is that you understand that the reason there's there's nothing personal about the fact that terrible things happen to you I mean unless you're directly causally involved as as it says I believe in the Old Testament rains on the just and the unjust alike and you know there there are and this is an existentialist motif the tragedy and difficulty and even the confrontation with evil are built into the structure of existence and it's not aimed at you personally and it it, well, as I said, it may be the price that we pay for existence itself, and you can say, well, that price is too high to pay. But, well, as I mentioned, if you start thinking that way, then you make everything much, much worse. It seems better to shoulder your cross voluntarily and stumble forward towards the light. That's, that's the best strategy, and I would say that, that just because it's the best strategy doesn't even necessarily mean that it's always going to work. Like this is no optimistic scenario. Like a dragon fight is no optimistic scenario. Confront the dragon and get the gold, and get the girl, and bring it back to to share with the community the gold. And you know that sounds all well and good, but after all, it is a dragon, and many people get eaten by them. So, but the the myth basically says, well, your best bet is to open your eyes and speak the truth and look forward forthrightly and confront the things that are um, the hydras that are raising their heads and their tentacles constantly to frighten you and stop you and to fight the tyranny of 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 the social structure when when it's oppressing you unduly and and that's and that's what you have to do but i would say if if that contempt is there man that's really worth digging into because that that would also be the source that would be the place where you would discover the Jungian shadow because you would discover that contempt is an unbelievably destructive force. Contempt is a particularly destructive force and it would be useful for you to try to think about, you can use fantasy to do this, it's like okay if you let that contempt manifest itself fully in like a dream or a daydream and, and you let it go on a rampage, like what what's the vision exactly? I mean, is it the destruction of the town? Is it the destruction of the country? Do you want the entire world to blow up? Like, or are there specific people that you're angry at? Or maybe you're angry at yourself? Like, you need to figure out those waves of contempt are unarticulated elements of experience. And they're part of your shadow. So, can you harness them for good? Well, I think the more you understand your dark urges, the more likely you are to be able to regulate and control them and to use them as part of your power. I mean, a person or authority, let's say, a person who has authority is someone who's integrated the dangerous parts of themselves and that's part of what gives their words gravitas and weight. Um, and so, yes, I think you can, you can harness them for good. It's, and I think that's the right thing to do, but it will involve a fair bit of painful soul searching. So, Okay, let's see what else we've got here. Can you hazard a guess why Europe is clamping down on speech critical of Islam when Islam is causing lots of problems with rape, gangs, terrorism, and generally being a menace? Why? Well, I suppose the first... Um, Let's say if I was going to oppose that statement, I would say, well, perhaps it's a propagandistic, uh, uh, what would you call it, conspiracy to 
blame what's happening in Europe on Islamic immigrants. I guess part of the problem is is that, at least as far as I can tell, the news has become sufficiently unreliable because it's so polarized that we can't really tell what's going on. I mean, I think the reason that Europe is clamping down on speech critical of Islam is partly the same reason that the entire Western world is clamping down on speech that's critical of anything that is associated with group identity, which is pretty much any set of ideas that unites people. And it's it's a consequence of the collective decision that we've made that egalitarianism and uh, conflict avoidance constitute the two highest virtues, and they trump everything else, including free speech. Now, why that's happened is a very, very difficult thing to say. I mean, um, I suspect to some degree that it's a consequence of women becoming involved in the political system, which is something that we've never experienced before, and women are more agreeable <clears throat> by nature than men, and agreeable people are are compassionate towards those they see as suffering, and that seems to include any minority, especially when you combine that with a kind of neo-Marxist doctrine that claims that anyone who has an advantage swiped it. And I think in the Islamic situation, you get a real conflict there because it's obviously the case that many Islamic practices are not commensurate with postmodern neo-Marxist feminism, let's say, but they seem to get a free pass. And I guess that's because the idea that all cultures are equal trumps the requirement for human rights for women. And, and maybe the other thing that's even darker is that there's a fair bit of revolutionary fervor in the more radical end of the left political spectrum, and that radical fervor is devoted towards tearing down the patriarchy, and of course that's basically Western civilization. And so if because Islam isn't part of Western civilization, then it can be seen as an ally in that, in that attempt. Um, that's what it looks like to me. Um, I also think, you know, that ignorance and, and all of that contribute. It isn't obvious that people who are afraid of such things as Islamophobia really understand anything about Islam. I wouldn't say I understand anything about Islam, even though I've read a fair bit about it. It's very difficult to put yourself inside a different belief system. I'm somewhat um, apprehensive about Islam because it looks to me like it's a totalizing system as well as a religion. And it's a totalizing system because everything has to come under its purview, including law and, and um, everything that goes along with that. There's no separation between church and state. And so I don't see how that's commensurate with the Western mode of existence. And I don't think people want to have that conversation because they want to say, well, no, everyone, diverse as they are and important as that diversity is, apparently such that everyone has to be represented equally, the diversity isn't really of anything about anything fundamental and we can all get along without a problem. And um, I'm afraid that that's extraordinarily naive. And then I suppose there's also an element of something like Western guilt, I guess, perhaps for what has been described as our imperialist past. Um, the, the, there's been a very long-term assault on, on the, what would you call moral, on the morality of the West. Uh, we're often viewed as the rapers and pillagers of the world, and that sort of goes along with the environmentalist ethos. And so I think 
we do have a fair bit of guilt about that, whether it's warranted or not. Um, I mean, history is a bloody nightmare, and it doesn't matter where you look, and I would say at least the, the West has brought advantages along with its disadvantages. Um, and I think that our attitude towards individuality is fundamentally correct and absolutely vital. And I would also say that the only countries in the world that are essentially worth living in, in any real sense, are the ones that are predicated on the Judeo-Christian tradition and manifested in Western, the Western body of laws. So, but there's still plenty of guilt and there's plenty of people who, well, who are, what, contemptuous of being, uh, as we discussed in the last question, and also angry with the political system because they're powerless or maybe they've been hurt by male authority figures. Um, that happens very frequently. And so they have absolutely no trust in, hier in hierarchical uh, structures. And there, you might add to that too, certain amount of laziness because the thing about hierarchical structures is that they impose values on people and then in order to progress in that value structure you have to discipline yourself and work hard and many of the radical leftists happen to be very low in conscientiousness and so they don't believe in hard work and they don't believe that people get to where they're going by hard work and then well one other thing there's a group of people I think who are basically personality disordered and those are the ones that have never had a positive relationship with anything that was masculine. And so whenever they see anything masculine that has motive power, and that would include authority and competence, not just power, they assume that that's tyrannical. And it's part of the postmodern assumption that all power hier all hierarchies are hierarchies of power. When the truth of the matter is, is that hierarchies in the West are usually hierarchies of authority and competence. And they're like they're oriented towards getting a certain task done, and they actually do get the task done. So, but we're um, dubious about our own ethical, um, what would you say, integrity. And I guess that's also why it's of particular importance for people to try to act honestly, because if you don't act honestly, and then you start to doubt your own integrity, and then when people come after you, you're going to be weak, and that's a really bad idea. So, how's the online personality test coming along? Can't wait for it. Well, it's coming along pretty well. We have all the uh, reports written, and we have the, um, the underlying computer architecture finished, and at the moment, we're just polishing it up, essentially, and we're hoping that you'll be able to get a very detailed description of all five of the big five traits, right? Extroversion, that's a positive emotion dimension. Um, that's, that will break down into enthusiasm and assertiveness. And neuroticism, that breaks down into withdrawal. Like if you're in a state of withdrawal, then you're frozen with fear and, and don't want to do anything. You're afraid to go out. You're, you're afraid to engage in any complex task because you might fail. You'll doubt yourself intensely. That's withdrawal in neuroticism and then volatility is that kind of impulsive touchiness that people often develop when they're in a bad mood you know where if you reach your finger out to touch them they'll flinch and maybe slap you and they're over sensitive to small slights and they don't have much of a sense of humor um, and agreeableness that subdivides into compassion and politeness and the liberal types are more compassionate and the uh, conservative types are more polite and politeness seems to be something like acting in accordance with the social norms 
governing interpersonal interaction, whereas compassion seems to be the proclivity to side with the weakest party, something like that. And I think it's the primary maternal dimension because the, the perhaps along with higher levels of negative emotion, because um, it's obviously the case that when you're dealing with children, especially infants, that you should take the side of the weaker party pretty much no matter what the logical argument is, right? Because an infant who's crying is always right, especially if it's under a year old. There's no logic to it. It's, it's an a priori fact that a crying infant is correct. And so we don't know how that translates into the political sphere because the most direct translation would be um, a complaining person is always right. And, you know, I see that manifesting itself, I would say, quite clearly in the politically correct domain, is that you always side with the person who's manifesting negative emotion. And you always assume that there's an external reason that needs to be rectified in order to, um, to deal with that. And, you know, it isn't obvious to me that agreeableness as an ethic is something that's transformable into the political or the adult landscape. But... Um, well, you know, we don't know these sorts of things and we can't even talk about them because people automatically assume that that's sexist or misogynistic or even though, you know, there are agreeable men as well as agreeable women because men are quite uh, maternal for, for, for the kind of large apes and mammals that we are. But we need to take these sorts of things seriously because it isn't obvious to me that an, an ethic of agreeableness can govern a complex polity. It looks to me more like conscientiousness is something that needs to govern arm's length transactions and that sort of thing, rather than treating everyone like kin, which you just can't do, because you don't have the energy. Um, anyways, the test will also associate conscientious or as assess conscientiousness, that's orderliness, which is, seems to be associated with disgust sensitivity and is a good predictor of conservative belief, and industriousness, which is something like the well, it's what it says exactly. It's the proclivity to engage in effortful work towards a defined goal in a reliable manner. And it's the second best predictor of long-term life success after IQ. And then the final thing it'll assess is openness to experience, which is more or less half creativity and half interest in ideas. And so if, if you take the test, you'll get about a, it's about a 10-page report and it's, it's quite detailed. And it tells you where you fit on a percentile basis and what your strengths and weaknesses are going to be as a consequence. And we're going to produce a couple's version so that two of you can take it and then you'll get a report that tells you how you're similar and different and where you're likely to, to have disagreements and agreements where it's going to be difficult to negotiate a consensus. That'd be where you're wi widely different from one another on a trait. Look, it's hard for an extrovert and an introvert to come to an agreement about how much socializing they're going to do because the extrovert says, well, let's socialize all the time. And the introvert says, well, you know, once a year would be plenty for me. And those aren't opinions, right? They're, they're built-in preferences that are far beneath the realm of opinion. And if you're high in openness and your partner is low in openness, like you're going to be interested in the theater and arts and, and literature and philosophy and and talking about ideas and and going to museums and that sort of thing and your partner it's in some sense it'll be like they're colorblind they just won't find that sort of thing engaging and interesting at all and you might be able to shift someone a little bit to a higher degree of openness but it's 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 not an easy thing to do and so 
we think and the literature seems to indicate that you should be fairly well matched on most of your traits with your partner uh, with the possible exception of neuroticism because it isn't obvious that two people are highly neurotic can get along. Uh, neuroticism is a pretty good predictor of marital unhappiness just like it's a good predictor of every other form of unhappiness. So. Benjamin Wood says, my room is a den of iniquity. Well, congratulations, that's not an easy thing to pull off. Um, I guess you might be asking yourself, what's that's doing for you? Obviously, you're being funny, and that's just fine, so. What advice would you give to someone looking to quit porn? Well, I gave some advice a little earlier about quitting alcohol, you know, and I would say it isn't that you're trying to quit porn. It's not the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it is that you're trying to figure out how to have a better life. And so you have to figure out, well, I would say do the future authoring program and keep your porn addiction in mind and think. So in the first part of the future authoring program, it asks you a bunch of questions about what your life could be like in three to five years if you took care of yourself like you were someone that you cared for. Um, and then it asks you questions about your friends and your family and your career and your time outside of work and your health and, you know, the important dimensions of life. And it, it asks you to spend um, 20 minutes writing about how good your life could be in three to five years if you got your act together and did what was good for you. And then it asked you to write about the hell you could be in if you didn't. And so I would say you really need to do that because porn isn't the issue. The issue is that you're not living your life the way you want to. And so you need a vision of life that's more compelling than the porn. And you need a counter vision too that frightens you, you know, because otherwise porn is obviously extraordinarily gratifying in the short term, but but you seem to be suffering from the medium to long-term consequences of its use. And so you need a story that you can tell yourself that's really deeply thought through about why this is not appropriate for you, what's, what it's, how it's hurting you and, and how it's minimizing you and perhaps making you embarrassed and ashamed and more socially isolated and all of that. So I would say think about it as cleaning up your psyche and, and your behavior rather than merely start stopping uh, stopping porn. You also might want to write down, and you could do this in the negative vision part of the future authoring program, you got to write down everything bad that you think porn is doing to you. Because obviously you have some suspicions that this is not good for you, right? That it's, that it's actually harming you in some important way. And so you need to be fully cognizant of what those ways are and then take them seriously and decide if that's the pathway through life on which you wish to travel and so and then I would also say good luck to you you know it's it's a very good idea to identify one of your weaknesses and work on it uh, you can you can strengthen yourself substantially by doing that is there a way to take any of your classes online will you be establishing an online university well there's no way at the moment to take any of my classes online for credit which I presume is what you're asking um, 
you all the lectures that I've done for the classes are um, online on YouTube for many of the classes so you can get the information and you can do the reading um, but you can't be accredited for it and that's partly due to University of well the University of Toronto hasn't set up the university to make that a straightforward thing yet and the accreditation problem is a big one will you be establishing an online university well you know that depends. Um, it depends. My health has been uneven for a substantial amount of time and when it's down, as it is right now, I'm probably only 5% as productive as I am when, it's, when I'm functioning at full bore. I seem to have developed a series of, or discovered a series of food sensitivities that I share with my daughter and it's very, uh, the reaction to eating the wrong thing is extremely vicious. It, basically flattens me out for a month. Um, I can't think properly and I can't organize my actions and so I, I, I would really very much like to pursue this idea of an online university and I've talked to many people about it but it's a very complex project and to a large degree it's going to be dependent on the state of my health. Um, when I'm healthy I can do a very large number of things simultaneously and I'm very enthusiastic about them and very efficient but when I'm not, it's, it's, I really wonder if I'm even going to be able to keep up the minimal uh, responsibilities necessary to keep my life in order. And that's actually a very terrifying thought. So um, I'd love to do it. You know, and I would also say I'm starting it to some degree because I believe these biblical lectures are crucial to the establishment of something like an online humanities uh, university because I believe that like our culture is made up of strata of stories that that might be a good way of thinking about it like hierarchical levels of stories and the base story is definitely the stories that are laid out in the bible for better or for worse and in order to understand our culture i think you have to have a grounding you have to be grounded in an understanding of the bible and i'm trying to make that as a religious in some sense as possible not necessarily because I believe that an a-religious approach to the Bible is the most appropriate but because I want to investigate it with the least amount of metaphysical baggage possible and I'm hoping in that way to help people stabilize their identities to illuminate the idea of the development of the divine individual which I think is Western culture's glorious contribution to human civilization and the thing that lifted us all out of slavery and and, and, and penury and serfdom and, and all of those subordinate um, roles into the society of relatively free and autonomous individuals that we are today. Now we can't let that go and I think it will go unless we have something very strong metaphysically at the bottom. I think we're weak without it because we fractionate and everybody believes a thousand different things and it's, it's sort of like, you know, you saw what happened to that uh, um, Wall Street protest, Occupy Wall Street, right? I mean, it's no wonder people were irritated about what happened in 2008, although periodic financial collapses are pretty common and it isn't always obvious who to blame. A lot of that was innovation driven as it turned out. A lot, you know, some of it was corruption, but some of it was just unbridled innovation and because uh, like the mortgage tranches were very brilliant in some sense, but they had unexpected consequences. But in any case, you know, there was a protest against the fact that, well, the the bulk of the 
catastrophe seemed to fall on the poor, which is, of course, always the case. But there was no organization whatsoever on the side of the Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street protesters. They, they believed such a wide variety of things that they were unable to, to organize themselves in any effective manner. And basically, as far as I can tell, all they did was go out and indicate that they were displeased. But that's not a very effective uh, strategy because if you're displeased and even if you're displeased for a reason and a valid reason you still need to have some sense of what it would be that would rectify that because otherwise there's no there's no movement forward so anyway so part of the reason I'm doing the biblical lectures which I think are perhaps the most important thing I'm doing and I hope to continue because of that is because I want to do whatever I can to give those stories their due credit and to investigate very thoroughly the manner in which the literary imagination of, of Western civilization, the Judeo-Christian tradition, manifested itself to produce the idea of the autonomous and valuable individual, right? Because that's our magic idea, man. That's at the basis of everything that we do. So I guess I'm going to be contributing to the online university in that manner. I'm going to try the other, but I can't promise anything for the reasons that I already indicated. Um, we were thinking of one tactic. Uh, I don't know what you guys think about this, but I was thinking an, a very interesting first course might be like a five-hour introduction to the history of the cosmos. And so I was talking with my brother-in-law, who would be willing to fund some of this along with me, um, and maybe with some crowdfunding. We'd like to host a uh, competition you know, so, and the competition would be for the best five-hour summary of the history of the cosmos from the Big Bang to the present. And we would lay it wide open for people with regards to what sort of technology they wanted to use, whether it was animation or lecture or readings or whatever, and to offer like a $10,000 first prize and a $5,000 second prize and a, you know, $3,000 third prize, something like that, and then maybe get people to vote on which, um, you know, which production was of the highest quality. And because what should happen with the online university, I think, is that we should set up a way of funding creative content producers instead of maybe focusing on the content itself because there's thousands of people out there who are very educated and who are perhaps even underemployed who have very specific expertise who could make courses. And there's just no reason not to harness that. And so, anyways, we've been thinking about it a lot, but the bottom line is um, how functional I am or become over the next while, because I'm certainly, like I said, I'm only running at about 5% at the moment, and it's, uh, it, it stops me from, it certainly stops me from enthusiastically tackling extraordinarily difficult problems like starting an online university. So, I think the this year has taken a reasonable toll on me and also this dietary um, sensitivity issue is um, complicated beyond belief. I can't really go out and eat and it's very difficult to travel and, and if I eat the wrong thing I'm basically um, in some variant of hell for about a month so um, anyhow we'll see we'll see how that all goes. What do you make of the Manosphere's claim that women's liberation has led to our weakened ability to pair bond 
the breakdown of the institution of marriage and sexual inequity in favor of alpha men. Well, you know, I guess probably I would say that to the degree that all of that is true, I wouldn't say that the women's liberation movement is what's done it, because I don't believe that the women's liberation movement is the primary driver of women's liberation. In fact, I think it's a, a secondary consequence of a far more radical biological revolution, and that's the invention of the birth control pill, right? Because the birth control pill essentially allowed females for the first time in evolutionary history to gain voluntary control over the reproductive function. And a tremendous amount of political upheaval followed in the aftermath of that. And, you know, people who were engaged in that political upheaval like to think about it as causal because they like to think that their, their efforts, say, on agitating in favor of, of women's equal rights um, it was actually the causal factor that produced the sociological transformation, but I think the evidence for that is extraordinarily weak given the unbelievable magnitude of the birth control pill. So, with the birth control pill, women become more like men, much more like men. And also, it seems to be the case that women on the birth control pill don't like masculine men as much. There's studies showing that, for example, if you show women the face of, a, of the same man at different, or the, the same men, at different phases of their ovulatory cycle, and all you do is widen the jaw or narrow the jaw of the men, that the women at the peak of their ovulation, where they're maximally fertile, like the wide-jawed men better, but when they're uh, infertile, they like the narrow-jawed men better, and wider-jawed men have higher levels of testosterone, and, and the pill mimics infertility, and so you know, we don't know what these radical biological hormonal transformations have done to the relationship between men and women. And, and you know, women too are trying to experiment with their new mode of being. It's like, well, now they're not destined at an early age to become, to transform themselves into mothers or to be, or to allow themselves to be transformed by nature into mothers, even though it's possible that they might be much happier if that happened. Um, I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case, but there is good evidence that women's general level of unhappiness has increased since the early 1960s. So, um, you know, uh, anyways, what has been the consequence of that? Well, the first consequence was wild sexual experimentation. And why not? What would you expect? It's like all of a sudden reproduction's under control. Uh, does that mean that women can be as promiscuous as men? Well, maybe that's what it means. We don't know. So that was part of the big 60s experiment, and it isn't obviously obvious that that went particularly well. Um, it certainly led to the pornographication of our society, which I think is been, I really think is actually quite dreadful. Um, maybe that's my innate prudishness, but I don't know. It seems to me that pornography demeans the participants as well as the viewers. There's something second-rate and furtive about it, and I think that everybody who engages in it knows that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, an, it's a substitute for the real adventure of life, and I do think that it leads to a certain kind of, uh, perhaps, contempt. It leads to contempt, I would say, um, and, and that can't be a good thing. I mean, I don't ever think 
and you guys can ask yourself this question I mean have you ever met anybody who can finished masturbating and then was proud about it and who stood up straighter because of it and who felt that they'd really conquered life as a consequence I mean I just don't believe that that's the that that's the the general post masturbation feeling I don't believe that I believe that it's 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 like a it's it's something you do when you when you don't have the right thing to do and and it's an admission that you're a second-rate player essentially something like that so the pornographication was a bad thing um, the fact that I mean it women's lives have been complicated too I would say by this by this transformation too because it isn't easy now for women to decide that they want to make being a mother a primary focus of their life because increasingly it's necessary for families to have two incomes and I think the reason for that there's two reasons for that one is that when women started to flood into the labor market was approximately the same time that the market started to open to places like India and China and working wages started to flatten but then you also have the fact that if you double the labor pool by introducing women into it perhaps you half the value of labor and that might maybe you do even worse than that if women are more agreeable and more likely to work part-time and more willing to take lesser hours and lower pay which seems to be the case then maybe you flatten the labor market even more so in terms of increasing sexual inequity in favor of alpha men well anything that breaks down pair bonding uh, matrimony is going to do that because um, you know sexual access for males is a predo distributed phenomena where a small proportion of the males get most of the invitations let's say and the thing that is a bulwark against that is is monogamy and part of the reason that societies are set up to be monogamous is so that that proclivity is controlled because it's not good for children let's say if if they don't have access to a father and it's not good for women if they're all competing for the same men and then it's not good for the men who aren't being chosen because they're not being chosen and so um, that just seems to be a recipe for resentment and and an aggression and I think the evolutionary psychology data on that's pretty clear so um, that's what I would say I, I don't think it's the it's women's liberation it's the birth control pill and um, you know don't underestimate the significance of the birth control pill it's like the hydrogen bomb or the or the computer chip it's a world revolutionary technology and for all we know it might do us in you know I mean in the West the birth rate is far below replacement and you know that's as a has a multi-generational strategy that's just that's an absolute dead end and of course no one can talk about that because well for for obvious the obvious reasons of egalitarianism and diversity and, and all of that but uh, the declining birth rate in the West is really I would say a, a, a catastrophe I, I don't happen to be one of those people who think the planet has too many people on it you know so um, you have said that the humanities have become corrupt and for a person to avoid the dangers of the postmodern neo-marxist ideologies and not enroll would you agree the same now applies to the institute of marriage with the laws as they are no I wouldn't say that um, 
I guess partly because I don't understand what the alternative is. I mean, first I would say that to the degree that men are justly or unjustly upset about the way the marriage laws are set up, and I think they have reason to be concerned, especially with regards to the custody of children and the probability of paying virtually endless alimony with unbelievably severe penalties for failure. Um, I think that it's incumbent on men to organize themselves politically and rectify that. And so I don't think that the answer is avoiding marriage. I think the answer is political organization and pressure on the right institutions to rectify this because uh, it needs to be rectified. And I don't like the idea of telling young men to avoid permanent relationships with women because as far as I'm concerned, and this is my traditionalism, I suppose, manifesting itself, there aren't that many pathways through life. You know, you need a career you need you need uh, interesting things to do with your with your time outside of your career interesting and meaningful things you need a family you need an intimate relationship to twine yourself together with someone else so that well so that you're protected during times of crisis and able to celebrate during times of joy and 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 so that you set up a stable structure so that you can have children and 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 have them feel uh, secure and, and able to play and like that's life man and if you miss any of that um then your life is fragmented and fractured and you're going to be hurt and like i'm not saying that's absolutely true for every single person there's always exceptions but i'm concerned with the bulk of people and the and what the bulk of people have already done and like your life just isn't in some ways that complicated you need to bear a social weight you need to have a family and commit yourself to that and, and it's in those commitments that you find the meaning in your life and so if you don't have them then well you float and, and you drift and, and when people float and drift they usually don't float somewhere good and they usually drift somewhere bad so um, I think that there are problems with the way the marriage laws are set up I think they're quite serious I don't think I do think that they um, persecute men often but I don't think the answer to that is to tell young men to avoid permanent relationships with young women at all costs because that is a very anti-life doctrine and it's a cure that's worse than the disease. That's, that's what I would say. I'm beginning to sort myself out thanks to you. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. I have a question about scheduling your time. Trying to make a schedule in a chaotic job with constantly changing shifts and hours. Tips, or should I find a new job altogether? Well, you know, I don't, I can't answer that, Josh, because I don't know enough about the details of your life. But what I would say, and maybe you've tried this already, is, you know, try to make two plans, okay? Because when you're, when you're trying to think something like this through, you need to think it through in detail. And so one plan would be how you would conduct your life optimally and organize your time if you kept your current job and you want to make that as acceptable and positive as possible and then make out another plan where you shift jobs and you have you know maybe a more stable working arrangement and then think about what your life would be like if you had that and then because you've laid out a detailed map of both you're in a much better position to compare them and so um, you know, you might need to talk to somebody about that too, but that's what I would recommend because it's it's just too complicated a job. Like if you find that you're 
your sleep is chronically disrupted and you can't organize your life the fact that shift change is no trivial thing and it can really throw your mood regulation for a loop too and i don't know if that's happening to you or not but that's also something else that's worth taking into consideration but i would say map out an alternative reality where you don't have those problems and see how much better that looks you know i presume there's some advantages to your current job so and it also depends on what your options are like how hard would it be for you to find another job and could you find a job like maybe the best thing to do would be to try to find a job that's better that doesn't have shifts you know and maybe that'll take you a year or two it's it, that can be very difficult but you know a, a year or two is a shorter period of time often than it seems so that's what i would recommend so Your idea of realer than real appears to parallel Plato's theory of the forms. Is this the source of the idea, or are you reconceiving ancient philosophy? Well, God only knows what the source of an idea is, you know. Um, uh, my sense of Plato's forms was, it was that they weren't exactly narrative in structure, although I think that, I think that there is an, at least an analogous relationship between the idea of archetype and the idea of form. Um, I think Plato was talking more about forms of, of tangible objects in the world, you know, where I'm talking more about permanent patterns of behavior, you know, because what our, what our culture is essentially is a dance of permanent patterns of behavior. I mean, there's a fair bit of variability in the, in the patterns like there is variability in a basketball game or a soccer game or something like that you know there's obviously predictability and variability but um, what's the predictable elements are the are equivalent in some sense to the platonic forms which is the point that you're making and it's the discovery of those more permanent forms that emerges as a consequence of the spinning of stories you know because we're watching each other constantly and we're articulating what we see and then we're amalgamating the articulations and we're sifting them for for fundamental patterns and like a good example of that it's something i just recently discovered when i did the biblical lectures on abraham you know i, I didn't understand that abraham was a late bloomer you know he was like the guy who stayed in his mother's basement for too long i mean he's 75 when god calls him on an adventure and god basically tells him to leave his family and his countrymen and his kinsmen and to go into the land of the stranger and that's see there's an archetypal pattern there and and the, the pattern is well it's the pattern of the call and it's it's deeply it's something that people experience you know like an adolescent a healthy adolescent wants to get away from his or her stultifying um, um, dependent upbringing and go out into the world of adventure and you know in in the biblical stories that's that's symbolically represented as something akin to a divine call which which i think is quite interesting because you know we don't understand these calls you know you have an impulse to do something something captures your interest something captures your motivation it's it's not like it's self-generated exactly you know it the the idea that the call to adventure is produced by something like a transcendent deity is 
a really interesting idea. That depends on what you mean by deity. You know, you could think about it as an ancient brain circuit, I suppose, although I don't know if that really makes it, things any clearer. But there is an impulse within people that pulls them out into the world to go away from their safe circumstances and to make their fortune out where there's famine and tyranny and, and threats to the integrity of the family, which are all things that Abraham immediately encounters when he listens to God. And so that seems to be something like something that's realer than real because everyone experiences that to some degree or everyone can relate to it. It's a deep, deep theme. And, you know, what I'm looking for in the biblical stories and in other mythological representations is these deep universal themes. Now, is that a reconceptualization of ancient philosophy? It's really hard to say because, you know, I derived the idea of the archetype, at least in part from reading Jung, and Jung, of course, was influenced because he had a great classical education by the ancients. And so exactly where these ideas come from isn't clear. So, um, so I guess that's pretty much all I, all I have to say about that. Nothing motivates me. Aside from eating and sleeping, I lie in my bed all day. Not on my computer, not on my phone, not doing anything. I just lie there thinking, what's happening to me? I would say that you are, and this is not a diagnostic comment, and I don't know enough about you to provide that sort of information, but I would recommend that you see um, a therapist and be screened for depression, because that's what it looks like to me. And I would say that if it's depression, you should do something about it because depression is very hard on people. It produces a lot of stress hormones like cortisol and, and that can hurt you. And You know, if it's only been a couple of days, I wouldn't worry about it. But if it's a chronic pattern, then you should go talk to somebody, even your family doctor, you know, and, and there's always the possibility that a low dose of an antidepressant might be worth trying. You'd know in a month if it fixed you, but I would say don't don't stay in that situation, man. Go Go find out. Do whatever you have to to get out of it. And especially the fact that you're not on your computer, not on your phone, not doing anything. You know, you're you're ruminating. That's just lying there thinking. That's loops of negative emotion. And you don't have any positive emotion, you know. That's why you're not on your computer or your phone. And so one of the characteristics of depression, well, I suppose two of the characteristics, is a decrease in positive motivation. And so that means that you're not interested in anything. And an increase in negative emotion, and that can manifest itself in that um, just lying there thinking, you know. So um, go talk to someone. Go talk to someone. Tell someone that this is happening. Get to your family doctor. Let them know what's happening. Get them to give you a depression screening and, uh, and see what you can do about it because there are effective treatments for depression and sometimes antidepressants work like an absolute charm. To tap into the dopaminergic system, you said you needed a valued goal. Is there any way to tap into the opioid system? I want to be more connected to people, but part of me can't get myself to care. Okay, well, one of the things that, that so maybe you're a little bit on the disagreeable side, that's a possibility. There's some interesting clinical evidence that suggests that one of the things that disagreeable people can do in order to facilitate their interactions with other people is to do people favors. And so what you might say is that you could start by acting like you care, and then maybe you could learn how to care 
through doing that, so maybe you could say, well, I'm going to do something nice for someone once every two days for a month and, and think about it a little bit and see, see if that changes you because, you know, sometimes you think yourself into change and sometimes you act yourself into changing your thoughts. And so that's what I would start by doing. Um, and, you know, you could also be more connected to people regardless of whether you care. You know, let's say that it would take you six months of practice or even a year of practice before you cared. But that's not so long, especially if you're young. So that's what I would say about that. Do we know if Dr. Peterson has just been overrun by his emails? I thought he would find mine meaningful, but people are telling me it's unlikely he'll even see it, so oh well, I guess. Yeah, well, I'm so overwhelmed by my email that it's just unbelievable. I mean, I, I probably have 10,000 emails that are unanswered, and, you know, at some point I just, I wouldn't say exactly that I gave up, but that's close enough. You know, I'm trying to respond to the ones that will destroy my life if I don't respond to them. But, And it's really sad because um, people are sending me really good letters. And I've been trying to think up a method of having someone go through my email to identify the letters that are unbelievably heartfelt and valuable. Because it's a shame to miss them. But um, I just haven't had any choice. Uh, you know, I'm basically except when I'm not feeling well, like now, I'm basically working from 7 in the morning till 11 at night, trying to finish my book, which I have the page proofs for now, so that's getting close, and to keep, to keep up with my obligations, um, including making the videos and, and preparing the biblical lectures and trying to zip here and there and talk. Um, so I'm very sorry that, and to all of you, I'm sure that many of you have written me letters and that you've put a lot of heart and soul into them and thanking me or describing a problem that you have or, or a solution that you've generated or ideas. And um, I really feel bad that I can't answer them, but I can't. So at some point you just think, well, that's just how it goes. You know, you're, you can't do what you can't do and there's no sense being overwhelmingly tormented by it. So. Um, that's that's the situation so please don't take it personally so Dr. Peterson, I'm considering going into the education stream slash system. Um, do you have any advice for me not to become a mouthpiece for indoctrinating young students? Well, one thing I would recommend is that you don't write essays that you don't believe in. Um, I think that's a sin. I think it's a sin to use your words falsely. And the reason for that, like, there's a good series of social psychology experiments that show like imagine that you bring someone into a lab and you have them write an essay about or fill out a questionnaire about their political opinions you know so you get a baseline measure of their political stance and then you ask them to write a thousand words maybe they identify as right wing 
and then you get them to write a thousand word essay on why a particular left-wing position is true. And then you have them come back in two weeks and you give them the same political belief questionnaire, they'll, they'll have shifted quite radically towards the left. And the reason for that is that people don't think through their positions in great detail. And so if you get them to think through a contrary position in great detail, then that starts to become more convincing. And so if you go into a field like education that's really um, pathologically overrun by the postmodern neo-Marxist types, you're going to experience a tremendous amount of pressure to falsify your words. You're going to be afraid that if you don't do that, you're going to fail. And maybe sometimes you will be punished by a professor, but I would say in most circumstances, I'm still optimistic enough to believe that if you write a good essay that isn't ideologically proper, you'll still get a good grade. And I guess I would say if you write a good essay that's not ideologically proper and you don't get a good grade, that's probably a good time to fight. So, because you either fight or capitulate, right? That's, that's, the, that's the hard truth. So, um, I'm not saying it would be easy, and I would also say don't make unnecessary enemies, right? You don't, everything doesn't have to be a battle, but now and then you're going to know that, you know, you'll hate writing the essay because you have to sacrifice your soul in order to put the words down, and then you, you, you dement and warp your character, and you just don't recover easily from that, so... I would say, don't do that, man. That's not good. Have you ever addressed Professor Kevin McDonald's work on an ethnic conflict theory of Judaism as a group evolutionary strategy vis-a-vis -vis Gentile societies? It's very provocative, but I find much of it persuasive. Have you read any of his work? Uh, this is going to be a very disappointing answer, I'm afraid, because the answer is no. I haven't read any of his work, so I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to answer that question, uh, unfortunately. So apologies for that. I've, I've recently developed a nasty case of hypnophobia and generally suffer from anxiety surrounding sleep. It's become a significant negative force in my life, cause unknown. I'm rather well put together and successful across many domains. Any advice? Yes go to bed later so one of the things that happens to people when they're having a hard time going to sleep and their sleep is disrupted is that they tend to go to bed earlier to catch up on their sleep and that actually has a counter that's that works at counter purposes to what they're trying to attempt um, what you want to do is delay your sleep until you're really quite tired so stay up much later get up at the same time in the morning eh? but move your sleep time later, maybe half an hour a night, till you actually do fall asleep. Um, the other thing that you could look into is that there are relaxation exercises. Behavior therapists offer those, but I'm sure you could find one online, a breathing exercise. And so often what you do is imagine you're laying in your bed and you're nervous. And so what you do is you concentrate on your feet and you flex your toes and then breathe in and out and relax them. And then you flex your ankles. Uh, or the soles of your feet and, and breathe in and out and relax and, and do that with every muscle group all the way up your body and remember to breathe deeply and regularly and that can help regulate your anxiety. So I would say stay up later till you're clearly tired. Um, the other thing you might try is sleeping in a different room. Um, and then the, uh, the final thing is there are pretty effective sleep medications like Zaploplon, for example, which is, seems to be pretty effective. And if you're really having a hard time sleeping, maybe you could try something like that and see if it 
and see if it helps. You don't have to try it forever. But so the simplest thing to do though is to go to bed later and because you'll be more tired and more likely to fall asleep then and it's really not going to cause you any trouble. So that's what I would recommend. What do we do when once our ego has helped us climb the dominance hierarchy and secure a mate? Why then should we keep looking for a mate and how to curtail that instinct? Well, I think part of the way that you curtail that in instinct is that you have, you have the sort of life that you would have with a mate. The question is, you know, what's the purpose of pair bonding? And one of the fundamental purposes of pair bonding, well, there's a couple. One is that it solves the sexual access problem so that you don't have to continue to obsess about who you're going to be with and, 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 and where and how and so you can get on with other elements of your life but I mean with, with your mate you have to decide well what does it mean that you're now together you know you're, there's companionship obviously and friendship and there's shared interests you have to decide what they are and I would say that you should continue dating your, your partner at least once a week or perhaps twice a week because otherwise the romance goes out of your life but then also you have to decide about children and, and eventually about grandchildren because, you know, you're going to get old and, and o you're going to get older and more mature and children are a huge part of life and they get a bad rap, which is really unfortunate because, you know, maybe I'm, I'm different in this regard and perhaps I am to some degree, but I never regretted having kids for even one second because they're so, I mean, all of a sudden you have an intimate relationship with new people that is as close as any relationship that you've ever had you have the opportunity to make that relationship as pristine as you possibly can I mean there can be a lot of catastrophe involved in it but it's a great opportunity and there's just nothing wrong with having some additional people that love you you know and so what you do is you turn your attention to the issues of maturity and you turn your attention away from the issues of being a juvenile and you do that partly by knowing that it's actually better to do so. You know, there's nothing more absurd than the 40-year-old, 20-year-old. It gets ugly, and, and there's, something like, there's something like spoiled milk about it. It goes off, and you have to gracefully accept the challenges of each stage of life, and things work a lot better when you do that, much, much better. And you also have to, I would say, work on and perfect your sex life with your partner, and express what you need and want and teach each other what's necessary to keep things exciting and 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 new it's not an easy thing to do but it's very much worthwhile because then you can combine sexual excitement with intimacy and there's no better combination than that so and love that can all be nested up inside love and inside a you know a destiny that's intertwined together and that's the best you've got man that that's 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 what life has to offer and so um, that's what you do is you accept the responsibility of the next stage of life and, and you don't mourn the past and I suppose that also means that when you're young you do what young people do and so that you don't want to do it again so I need to ask a very serious question. Pickles or green olives? Hmm, that's a tough one. Um, 
At the moment, I can't eat pickles, so I'd have to go with green olives. I do really like green olives, especially if they're spicy. So I'd probably, if I had to make a choice, it would be a tough one, but I think I'd probably go with green olives. So. Do you have any advice for someone who may be asexual? I want to have a husband and children, but I'm 27 and haven't felt a connection with anyone. I've just seen everyone as friends so far in life. Well, you might want to see a sex therapist. That might help. Um, I guess the other thing I would say is, well, you know, it might not be too bad an idea to um, act out what you want, perhaps in the absence of any necessary desire. Like, you know, you might be so have fallen so far inside yourself that it's very difficult to get out. Um, what a sex therapist would do would be, you know, once you were in some kind of, let's say, friendship that you wanted to move forward, would be to have you guys practice interacting in an intimate manner stage by stage so that you could get accustomed to it, you know. So you need to explore whether that's asexuality, as you say, or if it's fear, or if it's you know, it might be fear of rejection, it might be fear of sexuality, it might be that you're slow to warm up and, and introverted. Um, but I think seeing a sex therapist might not be a bad idea. I mean, you know, I guess the other thing, and I say this with some hesitation, is that if you find someone you like that you could be friends with, I mean, you could try... Um, initiating a romantic relationship and practice it for a couple of months and see what happens because you know maybe you'd warm up across time it's certainly it's certainly uh it's certainly a possibility so i have systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis you mentioned your daughter has something akin to it and a diet helped her with her fatigue may i ask what diet she used Cheers from Calgary. If you go to, if you look up Michaela Peterson, don't eat that. That's her blog. Don't eat that. And she has a lot of advice there about diets that you could try. And, and uh, you know, I would say do it with some hesitation and caution. But uh, that, that, uh, that seemed to help her a lot. So... Do you plan your day much or your time generally? Does this lead to higher productivity? Yes, I plan my day obsessively. My calendar is always absolutely full and often weeks in advance. And I plan in the morning, especially when I'm on top of things. Uh, and I plan each hour and I probably plan each minute. And yes, it leads to way higher productivity. You know, you, you decide what your goals are going to be. You place them in the calendar. Use the calendar as your friend, eh? Because what you want to do with a calendar is design a day that you want to have or a day that would be good for you. And a day that would be good for you is one that you're, that you're, uh, you know, when you end the day, you feel that you've moved, moved yourself ahead towards your valued goals and that you've kept chaos under control. And that enables you to sleep soundly and with a good conscience and to know that the next day is going to be at least not worse than that day. Planning is unbelievably useful. And again, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record with regards to the future authoring program, but it really is useful, you know. You need to figure out what it is that you're aiming at and why, and then you need to figure out how you're going to break that down 
over the months and the weeks and the days. But I would approach your calendar like it's your best friend. You think, okay, I'm going to design a week, man, that I really want to have. And that means you can schedule in leisure and all the things that you want to do, which, which you absolutely should do. And it's also quite fun to um, give yourself minimal time to do something complicated because it's quite challenging to see if you can do far more than you thought in far less time. And so that's a fun game. And the other thing you can do is like if you're avoiding something, you could schedule in five minutes of it and say, well, like if you're avoiding looking at some bills because you're afraid of them, you know, your first step might be to schedule in five minutes where you just look at the bill. You don't do anything else. And, you know, you might be able to entice yourself into doing that. So, but I would say um, learning to plan is unbelievably useful to schedule your time because that's your life, you know. Um, but schedule the life you want. That means you have to schedule your responsibilities, obviously, because responsibilities are those things that ruin your life if you don't fulfill them. So, um, all right. Safety Advisor Northern Alberta asking, what's the best personality test for my coworker, ground level and management? Any recommended practices to promote mental health with remote workers? Well, I'll answer the first part of that. Use a big five personality test. Um, what? My, my camera just my camera just uh, froze. Sorry about that, guys. I'm back. Um, hopefully everything is functioning again. Um, Question, how is capitalism compatible with your definition of good if it requires ever-increasing uses of the finite resources of the planet where once depleted would mean our end? Well, I would say capitalism isn't compatible with my definition of good if it requires ever-increasing uses of the finite resources of the planet. But that's by no means self-evident, even though the scuttlebutt, let's say, especially among the environmentalist-oriented types, um, whom I have some sympathy for, by the way, especially with regards to ocean depletion. Um, there's a huge argument, and there has been for many, many years, between the economists and the biologists, and this is a really important thing to know. And the economists point out that human ingenuity is such that we're continually able to make more with less. And certainly, over the last, well, 500 years, that, that especially in the last 150 years, that's just absolutely evident, you know, like people say we're going to run out of energy, and I think that's absolutely preposterous. It's like, it's, it's as crazy as thinking we're going to run out of matter. I mean, we're, we're going through a bit of a bottleneck right now because, you know, the population is going to increase to about 9 billion, and then it's going to decrease. That's, that's the most reliable projections, and 9 billion isn't a lot more than we have now, and, you know, there's going to be some um, 
environmental disruption as a consequence of that, but I don't think there's any reason to assume at all that capitalism necessarily requires ever-increasing uses of the finite resources of the planet. It's also not obvious to what degree the resources of the planet are actually finite, because we, we can continually think up new uses for things that nobody thought had any use up at all. And so it depends to some degree on whether or not you're willing to bet on human imaginativeness or you're going to be a Malthusian pessimist. And I'm not saying that there aren't reasons for both. I'm just saying that it is by no means self-evident that things are getting worse. You know, like, there, I can give you an example. So, you know, in the last, in the last 15 years, the millennium goal for the UN was to have world poverty, like absolute poverty, so that's less than $1.50 a day by 50% within 15 years, and that was actually reached ahead of schedule, and we've lifted hundreds of millions of people into the middle class over the last 30 years, and so there is an increasing inequality in the West because the working class has taken the brunt of that, say, that redistribution to third world countries, but by the same token, you know, there's no starvation in the world anymore except really for reasons of misdistribution and, 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 and political purpose. And people are becoming richer and more educated all the time. And, you know, and we are waking up to our planetary responsibilities. Once people stop starving to death and having to burn like dirt and, and eat, you know, substandard food that they've scraped out of the ground, they do start to turn their attention to things that might be more aesthetic. And so, look, I don't think there's any reason to be pessimistic, not fundamentally. And I guess the reason that capitalism is compatible with my definition of good, I wouldn't say that exactly. I would say that I don't see an alternative that has manifested itself that doesn't have far more negative consequences. You know, it's sort of a minimal pessimism issue. It's like, well, this is the best devil that we have. And I do believe it is, because the, the, the successful societies, by any stretch of the imagination, by virtually any um, metric, are the capitalist societies. It's certainly the case, for example, that the Soviet Union demolished far more of its natural resources to far less uh, productive consequence than the West did. There's evidence, there's suggestions that between 10 and 15 percent of the total area of the Soviet Union has been rendered more or less permanently uninhabitable. So the question is, compared to what? All right, guys, it's late. And I've answered lots of questions. It's 10.20. So, uh, Jordan, hope you are doing well, says I am who am. Glad to see you live. I'm glad to see me alive, too. That's, that's a good thing, and hopefully that will continue. So, uh, anyways, guys, uh, thank you very much for attending to this once again. Um, I'm always gratified by the response to these Q&As. It's fun to see what your questions are. Man, they've been really, they were really difficult tonight. I'm, I'm very impressed. I mean, some of them I was afraid to answer. And so um, if you didn't get your question answered and it was up near the top of the vote list, um, then part of the reason I didn't answer it is because I was actually afraid I wouldn't be able to generate something intelligent enough on the fly. So anyways, um, like I said, thanks very much. And uh, I'm going to start the biblical lectures again in October. And uh, I've got some other videos to release if I can get myself organized to, to uh, edit them and, and put them up. And uh, we'll see you in a month. So thanks. Thanks very much. Good night.
feeling stressed, left without gravity, in an environment that gets more and more complicated and complex every day, untangle your mind and go back to the roots of clear thinking. Get the original text of the Leviathan by Hobbes, the two treatises of government by Locke, the social contract by Rousseau, plus the U.S. Constitution from Pennsylvania, bound together into just one practical book. That's right. Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and the U.S. Constitution, bound together into just one practical book to keep your costs low.